day on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington, working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Thursday, November 10, 2022. Authorities in the Sudanese capital Khartoum return former President Omar al-Bashir to prison. They were informed immediately that there is an order for them to be taken back to the prison. They were not given enough time. Immediately after 30 minutes, they were taken away. And lecturers at Bahr al-Ghazal University go on strike over payment. Uh, so it's actually affected our learnings and also our lectures today because we never see how things are going to be, actually. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Sudanese authorities returned ousted President Omar al-Bashir and four of his close allies back to Khobar prison after spending nearly a year in a hospital in the capital Khartoum. In April last year, some Sudanese activists posted video clips on social media showing former President Omar al-Bashir in good health visiting some patients in the Amis Ali Hospital in Khartoum. The video clips sparked widespread controversy over the reality of al-Bashir's illness. The former president is being tried along other leaders of the National Islamic Front for planning the June 30th, 1989 coup. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. Under tight security, military and national security officers last night escorted the ousted Sudanese leader, his former deputy Bekri Hassan Saleh, former defense minister Abdurrahim Mohammed Hussein, leaders of the Popular Congress Ali Al-Hajj and Ibrahim Al-Sunusi to Kobar prison after they spent nearly a year at Aliyah Military Hospital in Omdurman. Al-Bashir and other individuals were granted permission by the Sudan's High Court in April last year to be hospitalized after defense lawyer petitioned the court to allow the defendants receive medical care under supervision. Some Sudanese activists posted on social media video clips showing the former president appearing to be in good health visiting other patients in the army hospital. The videos sparked widespread controversy over Bashir's illness. At the same time, some civil society activists said the court was playing games, not taking seriously the criminal charges against al-Bashir. Bashir's defense lawyer, Abdul Basit Sabdrat, confirmed to South Sudan in focus this morning that his client and four other individuals were taken back to Kobar prison. He said Bashir's health condition is still unpredictable and could worsen in prison. They were informed immediately that there is an order for them to be taken back to the prison. They were not given enough time. Immediately after 30 minutes, they were taken away. Al-Bashir is being tried on charges related to the fatwa and killing demonstrators. Earlier this week, Sudanese military leader General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan strongly advised supporters of al-Bashir's now defunct National Congress Party against getting the army involved in politics again. 
I am warning all those who want to tarnish the image of the army and send a special message to members of the National Congress Party and the Islamic movement that they should distance themselves from the army and stay away from the Sudan Armed Forces. Abu Bakr Abdul Razik, a member of the Islamic Popular Congress Party, says Al-Burhans appear to be under serious pressure from the international community to allow a civilian-led government to move forward. He says sending Bashir and his allies back to Kobar prison is Al-Burhans' attempt to win the confidence of the international community and Sudanese citizens. I believe Al-Burhan is facing a lot of pressure, especially from the Quartet Group and the United States, in addition to the head of the UN in Sudan, Volker Perth, and the U.S. ambassador to Sudan, who have been making a lot of political moves in the country in recent days. Volker Perth, who heads the United Nations Interim Transitional Assistance Mission in Sudan, or UNITAMS, has been mediating between the army and different civilian groups to reach a political settlement in the country. U.S. Ambassador John Godfrey, who assumed his post in Khartoum in August, has been actively meeting with various civilian political parties in an attempt to untangle the political deadlock in Sudan. Sudanese political analyst Muhammad Abdullah with a book says al-Bashir's return to prison is part of the warning by al-Burhan for Islamists to stay away from the army. This is an indirect message to those who are reaching out to him in recent days over a political compromise through the army. I think the decision is timely given the current political situation in Sudan. Al-Bashir faces five charges of crimes against humanity, two charges of war crimes and three charges of genocide in the International Criminal Court. The charges related to allegations of murder, extermination, forcible transfer, torture, and attacks on the civil population, including pillaging and rape committed between 2003 and 2008. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. Professors and lecturers at the South Sudan's University of Bahar al-Ghazal have laid down their tools demanding the national government to implement a new salary structure. A representative of the striking teaching staff says the lecturers had earlier given the national government a seven-day ultimatum to implement the new salary structure adjustments in order to meet the current inflation rate in the country. For VOA News, Dengai Deng reports from Juba. Some students say learning has ground to a halt because lecturers are not showing up in the classroom. Agweka Koch, a second-year student in the College of Veterinary Science at University of Bahar el-Ghazal, is one of them. No students is going to attend the lectures, actually, and we know very well lectures are having semester, first semester is almost. So it's actually affected our learnings and also our lectures today because we never see how things are going to be, actually. So the persons cannot wake up in the mornings and go into the workplace, and there's nothing that can motivate you. Second year, University of Bar el-Ghazal medical student, Kweth Ariyeth, says he is worried about upcoming exams and is urging the Ministry of Higher Education to meet the demands of teachers. It's actually their right to claim because as somebody who has been employed, you have to have something. 
because for them they have parents to take care of, they have kids at different universities and also primary and secondary school. And if they are not fed up, they, they cannot manage to work. Loal Dario, a representative of the strike teachers, says lecturers gave the national government a seven-day ultimatum to implement approved salary structure adjustments to meet the country's inflation rate, but the Ministry of Higher Education failed to respond. For in day 29 uh, October, we gave we have given a warning uh, for one week, and this one week has just ended uh, without uh, any response from Minister of Higher Education. Then now uh, we have declared industrial action. What we what we want is that we need urgent implementation of this new salary scale. Urgent implementation. That's all. Public university lecturers received an equivalent of about $150 per month before 2019. When the Council of Ministers approved a salary structure for public university lecturers, increasing their wages to 500,000 South pounds or about $1,000 a month. Dario says the Ministry of Higher Education failed to meet the seven-day ultimatum to implement the rises. He says the staff will remain on strike until their demands are met. The, the main reason is that we need uh, a new salary scale to be implemented as soon as possible. And second to it also, we need this new salary scale to be uh, some of the items to be included like uh, uh, medical coverage and also uh, a ticket and also this one, uh, uh, the training of teaching staff should be included in this budget. South Sudan Minister of Higher Education Gabriel Changson Chang says his ministry is consulting with other institutions to finalize the implementation of the new salary structure for lecturers. To approve financial uh, obligations is always a process. In 2019, when that salary structure was adopted, it has to pass through various uh, stages. And this is what we are doing. Minister Chang urges the university lecturers to call off their strike and resume their work while the ministry follows up the salary issue. If they don't uh, trust what we are doing, okay. Uh, if they have a magic solution, uh, let them do it. Because uh, we, we should avoid working under intimidation, okay? Uh, we should not be intimidated to do anything. And especially for us in the Ministry of Higher Education, we don't have the funds uh, to give to the universities directly. Chang says the extra money for salaries has to come from the Ministry of Finance. South Sudan, five public universities are the University of Juba, University of Bar el-Ghazal in Wau, Dr. John Garang University of Science and Technology in Bor, Rumbek University, and Apanail University in Malakal. For VOA News, I am Deng Guiding in Juba. Still in Juba, traders at Konyakonya Market, one of the oldest and largest markets in South Sudan's capital Juba, say some members of the Islamic Council are collecting land rent taxes from traders, claiming the land belongs to the council. But Juba City Mayor Michael Lado Thomas Ali Jabo says the land belongs to Central Equatorial State and no group should tax traders owning shops at Konyakonya Market. For VOA News, Juliana Shiapai reports from Juba.
The standoff between traders and some members of the Islamic Council is growing as traders accuse the council of collecting illegal taxes at Konyokonyo market. Sebi Taban, a member of the Chamber of Commerce at the market, says the Juba City Council has the right to collect taxes from traders, but the Islamic Council does not. We, the Chamber of Commerce in Konyokonyo, we strongly refuse to let other parties come in to collect land fees because the Juba mayor gave an order is stopping other councils from collecting money from traders because it is affecting all the traders in all this process. It is not right for other people to take money from traders and the Juba City Council also takes money. So who does the trader pay the money to? They pay it to the government and the government is the Kator Council. Juba City Mayor Michael Ladu Alijabu has ordered traders at Konyokonyo Market to stop paying money to any member of the Islamic Council and says he has written to the Islamic Council ordering them to stop collecting taxes. I warned you to not give money to anyone carelessly. And to my Muslim brothers, I have stopped them with an official order to not collect money from anyone. And I told them to not close anyone's shop and not take money. And if they do so, I can take legal measures because I am the government and I can even close their offices because they have insulted me many times in press conferences, newspapers and social media. But that is all nothing. An order is an order. Some traders at Konyokonyo Market, like Bashir Elias, says they have been paying the Islamic Council since 2020. The council came to us since 2020 asking for money. They wanted 10,000 South Sudanese pounds, and we have their seats up to now. We cannot talk because the person who gave us the land is the Juba Council, the owner of the land. We do not know that the Islamic Council is the owner of the land. In an effort to speak to the Islamic Council for comments, one member, Jaranebi, declined to comment and referred this program to the lawyer for the council. While at Konyokonyo Market, other traders confirmed that the Islamic Council still collects money from traders, but does it secretly. Traders say the new fee is 15,000 South Sudanese pounds. Most traders in South Sudan capital complain about the multiple taxes levied on them by different groups operating in Juba town. The mayor recently slashed council tariffs from 12 to 5 things and cancelled the tariff known as the mayor fee. For VOA News, I'm Juliana Shapai in Juba. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, a Sudanese engineer is behind the success of World Cup at Qatar. Find out how after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for life. The fact that I am able to live a full life and be able to do the kind of things that I want to do. I'm very thankful for my life, my children, and my job. My job helps me to get money. I'm very, very thankful for that. I thank Allah for my life and for my parents. I'm grateful because I've attained at least education. Uh, the education is going to help me get a job and get other opportunities in life. 
I'm thankful for my family, my friends, my husband, my children, and all the lovely friends of mine who have been helpful to me. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Just over a week before the start of the World Cup tournament, VOA's Gwen Oten shines a spotlight on the football turf that is set to make its debut in Qatar. Thanks to the help of Sudanese civil engineer Hatim al-Sharif, who has maintained Qatar's football pitches for the past 15 years. As the countdown continues to the start of this year's World Cup tournament, much of the attention has been on the players and national teams that will go head-to-head on the pitch. But what about the pitch itself, one of the most important yet often overlooked elements of the game? Qatar 2022 is the first World Cup to be staged during the winter, so the tournament can avoid the blistering summer heat in the Middle East. But while the drop in temperature will benefit athletes on the field, the transition from summer to a milder winter is the most challenging time of year for turf. Winter normally begins in Qatar in the month of November, but groundsmen forced an early winter in September by blasting chilly air directly onto the pitch to make fields more durable in time for the upcoming tournament. Sudanese civil engineer Haitham Al-Sharif has developed Qatar's turf since 2007 to be player-perfect for its World Cup debut. And Al-Sharif says ensuring sports turf thrives in the desert heat is a unique challenge. Preparing and growing high-quality sports turf is generally challenging, but here in Qatar, it was a different level of challenge. The weather uh, condition and the climate together with the level of performance criteria we have set for ourselves makes it extremely challenging to develop the product we need, but we succeeded. An elite core of groundskeepers maintain eight World Cup stadium pitches and 136 training grounds across Qatar. And the turf will be able to withstand the rigors of the upcoming month-long tournament thanks to hundreds of tons of grass seed imported from the United States every year and used on all playing surfaces. Grass varieties in Qatar turn dormant as temperatures rise, making adequate growth a challenge between football matches. The American grass seed will hold together in Qatar's climate, but Al-Sharif says knowing when to seed the pitch takes just the right calculation. When, when you have wear and tear, you want the grass to keep growing to recover. The uh, warm season grass usually goes dormant in winter. If you seed the pitch too early, you will have germination, but the uh, winter grass will not really grow. It will actually die because it's too warm. So we are trying to balance all factors and choose the right time. And, and, and this, is, this is, again, uh, a, an annual process. 
And annually, each pitch requires 50,000 liters of water in the summer months. And as the World Cup approaches this winter, Qatar will need a daily dose of at least 10,000 liters of water for each of its stadium pitches. And with virtually no access to fresh water in the region, groundsmen rely on desalination, a process that removes the salt to make water safe for drinking and watering grass. And if all else fails, there's always a plan B. Organizers have set aside about 40 soccer fields worth of reserve grass at a farm north of Doha that can be played on in as little as eight hours. Mohamed Al-Atwan worked as a project manager for Stadium 974, the World Cup's first fully demountable football venue and host of seven matches in the upcoming tournament. Al-Atwan says players, coaches, match officials, and spectators can rest assured Qatar is ready for any turf emergency. Yeah, I'm proud of the, the whole project, but the grass is where the action is happening, especially during the, the event itself. And even uh, after the event itself, we didn't have to do any re-turfing. So maintaining uh, the quality and the, the, the grass with the performance and having a successful tournament without any impact on uh, uh, the grass, which is the main field of action for the, the tournament for, and for, for the players. Uh, we were very proud and very happy. Organizers have declined to disclose the cost of the turf program, but with billions of dollars spent over the last decade leading up to the tournament, it's safe to say no expense has been spared. The lush, green, beautiful World Cup turf will be put to its first test when football action kicks off in the tournament's opening match between Ecuador and host country Qatar on November 20th. For South Sudan In Focus, I'm Gwen Uten. UN experts say the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab has widened its revenue stream beyond its traditional activities like charging tolls at checkpoints to illegally taxing properties and construction. In a new report, UN experts say the terrorist group is seeking more funds to pay about $1 million US dollars per month in salaries to its fighters. The report says despite Somali's crackdown on Al-Shabaab, the militants are also able to move funds through local and Islamic banks. Ahmed Mohammed reports from the Somali capital, Mogadishu. A Somali woman who declined to be named for security reasons tells viewers that a Shabab militants demanded she pay 425 US dollars this year in so-called taxes for a house she bought almost three years ago in Mogadishu. She says a man called her on the phone and summoned her to an Shabab court outside El Shabiyah. Lower Shabele region. She says after traveling there, she met a crowd of people from Mogadishu who were also summoned by the court. She says nobody dares to defy the group's orders because people get killed. A UN report made public this month says the Islamist militants, in an effort to increase revenue, are now charging illegal taxes on property and construction. The UN experts report says a Shabab in May issued a notice to households of annual charges between 100 and 300 US dollars for iron sheet, stone, and multi-story houses. The report says the group also extorts owners of buildings and homes being constructed around Mogadishu at about 25% of the value of the development. 
VOA spoke to four Mogadishu residents who paid a Shabab the local property taxes between May and July this year, including one who paid an additional $125 fine because of delayed payment. None of them would give their names out of fear of payback from the militantists. Abdisalam Gulet is a former Somali deputy intelligence chief and co-founder of Mogadishu-based security firm Eagle Range Services. He says cutting off Ashabab's funding is key winning the war against the militantists. He says there's no doubt that the group gets tax from the capital and the port. Bullet says the government should come up with plans to deal with these issues. People do not pay money to Ashabab because they love it. He says they pay due to fear. Bullet says the government needs the confidence of the Somali people. Because people know where Ashabab gets its income and the companies that are supporting the group. Somalia's government has warned against paying illegal taxes and fees to Ashabab, but Somalis say authorities cannot guarantee their security if they do not be. Bullet says Ashabab has embedded itself within the business sector, making it difficult to isolate it from other traders. Bullet says Ashabab is committed to living in the community, so it is difficult for the government to block Ashabab's financial streams. He says even traders may not know that they trade with Ashabab, while others know it. Despite the government efforts to cut off Ashabab financing, the UN report says the militant can freely move funds through commercial and Islamic banks and payment firms. The report says the Islamist group moves money in an amount slightly less than $10,000 to avoid being flagged by anti-money laundering and terror financing monitors. The Somali government this week announced it had closed several accounts thought to be operated by Ashabab. Somalia's Deputy Information Minister Abdurrahman Aladala spoke Monday at press conference. He says they have received more than 10,000 messages from Somalis sharing bank accounts that the Khawarij were using to get money. Aladala says they directed the banks and remittance firms to block the funded accounts. Abdullahi Godahbare is Somalia's former Minister for Planning and International Cooperation. He told VOA. The move to shut bank accounts affiliated with Ashabab was a step in the right direction. The employees of the banks must be held accountable and also those who are proxy who has who their names are used to open accounts should be uh, prosecuted and uh, face justice. Uh, that should be the next step in my opinion. But overall, the government's direction is right. And I think that's a very important step that they did. But uh, I don't think it's enough uh, to achieve uh, significant, uh, tangible results. Barre says Somalia should also invest more to build the capacity of its investigating agencies to better track the flow of money to the terrorist group. Ahmed Mohammed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And that's all we prepared for you this Thursday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you missed this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with the song Jamila from a group from Sudan's Blue Nile State.
listening to the song Jamila from a group in Sudan's Blue Nile State. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Jamila.